The brief story I'm about to tell happens in the C.S. Lewis children's book, The Silver Chair, near the end. Old King Caspian is dead. His body lies, Lewis says, on the golden gravel of a creek bed, the water flowing over him like liquid glass. His long white beard sways in it like waterweed. Nearby is an enormous lion named Aslan. He rules that world that often is away. With him are three children, friends of Caspian and the lion, and all are weeping, including Aslan. Aslan tells a boy named Eustace to break an enormous thorn from a nearby bush. And then he tells Eustace to drive the thorn into his own paw, and Eustace knows that he cannot disobey. This is what happened next. Eustace set his teeth and drove the thorn into the lion's pad. There came out a great drop of blood, redder than all redness that you have ever seen or imagined. It splashed over the dead body of the king, and Caspian began to change. His white beard turned to gray, and from gray to yellow, and got shorter and vanished altogether. And his sunken cheeks grew round and fresh, and the wrinkles were smoothed, and his eyes opened, and his eyes and his lips both laughed. Caspian had been dead, now he was alive. A drop of Aslan's blood had brought him back. His form was changed. He looked neither young nor old nor in between. The children thought he seemed both young and old at once. That's a taste of C.S. Lewis's made-for-children retelling of the gospel. In Gilead, a made-for-grown-up story, Marilyn Robinson gives us two old pastors, both good men, whose thoughts sometimes turn to heaven. Calvin had taught them to tread softly on the subject. When we're ready to see that truth, then God will show it to us. One of the pastors, Ames, is keeping a journal for his young son to read when he grows up. Ames writes, This morning I've been trying to think about heaven, but without much success. I don't know why I should expect to have any idea of heaven. I could never have imagined this world if I hadn't spent almost eight decades walking around in it. But notwithstanding Calvin, Ames does have some ideas about what heaven must be like. He feels it must be true that we'll carry memory of earth to heaven, including memories of sorrow. I can't believe we will forget our sorrows altogether. That would mean forgetting that we had lived, humanly speaking. The whole big history of life on earth, Ames thinks, will be sung in heaven like Homer told the Iliad in Odyssey. There's so much to tell that Ames is filled with wonder. I feel sometimes as if I were a child who opens its eyes on the world once and sees amazing things it will never know any names for, and then has to close its eyes again. I know this is all mere apparition compared to what awaits us but it is only lovelier for that. There is a human beauty in it. 
I can't believe that when we have all been changed and put on incorruptibility, we will forget our fantastic condition of mortality and impermanence. The great bright dream of procreating and perishing that meant the whole world to us. In eternity, this world will be Troy, I believe. And all that is past here will be the epic of the universe, the ballad they sing in the streets. Because I don't imagine any reality putting this one in the shade entirely, and I think piety forbids me to try. Ames's friend, Boughton, says he has more ideas about heaven every day. He says, mainly I just think about the splendors of the world and multiply by two. I'd multiply by 10 or 12 if I had the energy. But two is much more than sufficient for my purposes. So he sits rocking on his porch chair, multiplying the feel of the wind by two, the smell of the grass by two. C.S. Lewis had a similar idea. In his children's stories, the next world very much resembles this one, but with greener greens and redder reds. Love, music, and adventure are intensified and purified. Mozart times two, the Buffalo River times ten. What we won't find there, he says, is sorrow. God shall wipe away the tears, as we are assured in the book of Revelation, for the former things have passed away. Caspian finds that it is no longer possible to feel afraid even if one wants to. Also gone is the pain of moral conflict. After Caspian returns to life, he wants to ask Aslan for another gift, but he hesitates to name it. He isn't sure the thing he wants is the kind of thing a man should want in heaven. He makes the request and quickly asks if his wanting it was wrong. I read this story 50 years ago, and I still remember Aslan's reply. You cannot want wrong things anymore now that you have died, my son. So heaven is where desire itself points us only to the good, true north. No more misguided choices in the search for happiness. Those C.S. Lewis children's books have fed my faith and imagination through all these years. By reading those books to me, my mother and father spread out for me a rich banquet of hopes upon which my faith continues to feast. Returning to earth and the life we presently inhabit, Lewis's name for it was the Shadowlands. Here in the Shadowlands, curly heads of youthful hair grow bald. Fresh, smooth faces grow yellow beards till their wife tells them you have to cut them off or otherwise will turn to gray and then white. The full, rosy cheeks sink and fade to white. And in the Shadowlands, we often are afraid. Anxiety simmers until it boils. Laughter brightens life, but is challenged by anger and ridiculed by cynicism. Sometimes cannot penetrate depression. In the Shadowlands, the thing we want is sometimes wrong. In the great epic of this shadowed life on earth, this morning's gospel tells of an exhilarating moment. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them. 
and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. You can catch the juxtaposition between the wood and glass above the altar. For a moment, Peter, James, and John see life times two. It is just a glimpse, because when they come down the mountain, they plunge headfirst into a scene of intense anxiety and moral conflict. So it is with mountaintop experiences in Shadowlands. Churches are institutions of the Shadowlands, but with open windows through which streams of light pour in. Even the simplest of churches will expose the people of the shadows to the light, the ancient story of the Lion of Judah, who cast out anxiety and fear, whose touch brought health and hope, whose love drew love from crowds and helped them want what's right, and whose blood will bring the dead to life. I am not now speaking metaphorically. The decay and death we expect in life are not metaphorical, nor is our hopeful expectation of their cure in life eternal. That final change is the end towards which we move through life. St. Paul calls it the prize, while inviting us to embrace the pain of getting there. I want to know Christ, he writes, and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. Then he says this, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what lies behind. Have you done wrong? Without a doubt. Is it serious? Perhaps it is. Have you wanted what was wrong? Of course you have and do and will. We all have and do and will. Such is our nature in the shadowlands. Sometimes we simply fail to see the right, even when it is right before our eyes and there's damage done. How can we forget that? Our sins cling to us like a shadow. The history of slavery and Jim Crow is an example. So is the damage of a drug addiction, an embezzlement, or an illicit love affair. When candidates run for office or are appointed to positions that require congressional consent, We scrutinize their past intensely, and a slip or two can do them in. In Shadowlands, this makes good sense as public policy. Either we hold people accountable for past actions that seem pertinent to the nature and importance of their work, or we diminish the standards of the law, the force of right and wrong, without which society would fall to pieces. We cannot escape from making judgments on ourselves and one another. Forget what lies behind. That seems impossible. So here is another camel poised at the threshold of the eye of a needle seeking passage. About such camels, Jesus said that what is impossible for us is possible for God. Christ calls us forward. The Holy Spirit is within us answering the call. Lesser spirits haunt us of animosity, regret, anger, guilt, feelings of betrayal, 
all insisting that we look back. The Holy Spirit answers by infusing memory with hope and with love for people we have damaged and with trust in Christ and the power of his resurrection. This Holy Spirit gives us strength to embrace Christ's suffering, becoming like him in his death. Now comes the metaphor. This change is our transfiguration. The moral wear and tear of life, the moral old man's beard, sunken cheeks, and pallid skin are touched by the blood of Christ, and we are morally restored to youth and vigor. It does not mean that we escape our past and the consequences of our actions. It means that we have the hope and faith and strength and love to bear them honorably and bravely, accountable but unashamed. It is an old saying and true that the church is not a museum for saints. It is a school and hospital for sinners. That is why our forebears built this beautiful cathedral. Here camels poke their snouts through the needle's eye and miraculously pass through. Don't let what lies behind detour us. Even now, the spirit narrows the divide between what is right and what we want that sometimes gives us trouble. Until that bright new day when a drop of blood from Aslan's paw will touch our hearts to make them pure, smoothing out our wrinkles, physical and moral, turning our old white hair to red or brown or black or blonde times two or ten. <laughs>